0: The commanders requested permission to bulldoze the wire down. But because that barrier was a metre behind the actual border, any incursion by Western tanks would in effect be an invasion of East Berlin and that could become World War III.
1: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. From the moment East Germany was formed in 1949, many of its citizens chose to leave to start a new life in the West. By the mid-1950s, the trickle had turned to a flood as large numbers rejected Walter Ulbricht's communist paradise. His workers and peasants' state could not afford to lose the skills and productivity from these key workers, so he proposed a radical solution, to physically fence in the whole population. I speak with Andrew Long, the author of an excellent series of books about Cold War Berlin, as we explore the background and build-up to the building of the Berlin Wall, from the closing of the inner German border to the momentous events of August 1961. We examine in detail how Operation Rose, the operation to close the border between East and West Berlin, was planned and executed, and look at how the West reacted. Look out for the links in the podcast information to Andrew's books. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, And you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history.
0: Hi, I'm Andrew, and I'm very proud to support Cold War Conversations with a small donation each month, because Ian's put together such a
1: brilliant range of interviews. If you want high power, that's the son of Nikita Khrushchev, the cross-border romances, old-fashioned spy stories, and the bizarre world of East European football. If you do support the podcast, your wallet will be a tiny bit lighter,
0: but your brain be very very thankful
1: if a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate i'm delighted to welcome andrew long to our cold war conversation we have a book giveaway for andrew's berlin wall book so do check out the link in the episode notes to see how to enter
0: after the second world war after the VE Day. Occupied Germany was split into four zones, the Soviets in the east, the British in the northwest of Germany, the Americans in the southwest, and the French had a strange sort of double triangular region in the west. Uh, Berlin was split in a similar way, and this was all organized by... Uh, the meetings that went ahead, the conferences that went ahead before the war came to a close. So they were, in theory, straight into the post-war map of Europe. In the Soviet zone, though, they threw a tight web over basically all aspects of society in their zone. They controlled the media, education, youth groups. You had the uh, FDJ, trade unions, and probably most importantly, the police. And then Walter Ulbricht was a veteran communist, and he uh, went into exile as the war started. Basically, the Nazis came down on communists pretty hard, and he went to Moscow, and he basically became a Moscow-trained statesman, if you like, a political agitator. But he was installed as leader of the Soviet zone, um, but very much on a tight leash from his Soviet masters. So if um, Ulbricht was the puppet, it was the Soviets who were pulling the strings. The Soviet way of doing things pretty much kicked in straight away, and the crackdown on dissidents started. um, And then a couple of years down the line, 1949, uh, October 1949, the German Democratic Republic was formed. GDR or DDR, the Deutsche Demokratische Republik.
1: So the, the GDR or East Germany is formed. What is the border like at this point? Are there any fortifications stopping people leaving or not?
0: Okay, so you've got the... In a German border, which runs from the Baltic coast all the way down to the Czech Republic, or Czechoslovakia as it was called then, it's 1,400 kilometres. And this is a pretty porous open border. There are border posts, in some places there are fences, but most of it is is actually unfenced off. Um, So there was actually freedom of movement to a certain degree between the two. Uh, The border ran right through the middle of towns and villages. It was all done on postcodes. The Germans had very efficient uh, postcoding set up prior to the war. And basically the border was drawn along those postcode lines. But they, of course, went straight through the middle of towns, which will, of course, become significant later. Inside Berlin, the sectors were basically free-flowing. free, free flowing. There was no physical borders at all. Uh, there were some very familiar-looking signs saying you are leaving the American sector that many people will be familiar with, but there was pretty much free movement. You did get some issues with people in the West nipping over to the East to, to do their shopping, for example, because it was a lot cheaper in the East. As they returned, they quite often get um, mugged by... um police and had their shopping confiscated and you you also had a situation with the people who worked in the west and lived in the east so they had much lower living costs but they were able to have free movement across the border.
1: What was the East German economy like at, at this point?
0: Well Ulbricht was a unconstructed moscow trained Stalinist <laughs> in some ways he was more Stalin than Stalin himself um, he built his workers and peasant state, very proud of the sort of the the workers' tradition, which of course, as was in most of the Soviet satellite states, a complete sham. He introduced this policy called building socialism aufbau des socialismus, and that followed the Soviet model of Collectivization of agriculture, nationalising the industries and focusing on the heavy side of in- industries. So as a result, consumer goods um, suffered. There was political cronyism going on. And by, say, 1952, they were still living in 1947 levels. And if you think about it, 1947 was, of course, straight out of the war. So basically it was pretty grim. He also built a police state to basically keep this population in line. They were highly militarised. There was all kinds of different types of police, but basically they were all armed to the teeth. Very difficult to actually tell the difference between them, to be honest.
1: Was there much dissent from the East German population about how constrictive it was and what was being imposed on them?
0: Yes, there was. Um, Obviously, within the context of a police state, you have to understand that dissent was stamped upon quite quite hard hard, but by 1953, people had began to resist, object, and in Berlin, 1953, in June, about 2,000 workers on a prime, high profile building site in the middle of um, East Berlin down tools in protest of new work norms, which basically meant for them working. More to get the same amount of money so they weren't very impressed the protest grew and grew and grew right up to a general strike and on the 17th of june there's about half a million right across east germany not not just in berlin but right across the country all downing tools protesting shouting abuse at government ministers calling for free elections which of course was a cardinal sin and basically causing a lot of problems Stalin sent his enforcer Beria to uh, Berlin with an order to basically stamp on this uh, insurrection he sent in the tanks in a very um, soviet way uh, 300 were killed thousands were arrested very harsh sentences something like 200 people were executed for, for taking part in these demonstrations so yeah you're right that um, the the there was dissent, there was protest, but it was stamped on very hard indeed.
1: If you are interested in learning more about the 1953 uprising, uh, have a listen to episode six of Cold War Conversations, where we have a episode uh, devoted to uh, that subject. Andrew, what do the workers do as a result of this? Are they voting with their feet now? They
0: are. They leave in droves. So this this. Porous border, fourteen hundred kilometres. There's no way that it can be defended or sort of patrolled sufficiently. So they were crossing in their tens of thousands. If you look at some of the numbers, um, nineteen forty nine was over a, about one hundred and thirty thousand people escaped. That's that's the year the East German uh, regime was established, and that. Number kept increasing, almost two hundred thousand the following year, and that and same in 1951, 1952. So these people were young, they were educated, they were skilled. Um, importantly, they were of military age. They were doctors, dentists, teachers, engineers, technicians. Basically, the the future of the country.
1: So, so this was a real brain drain as well as skills drain from East Germany and. When they arrived in West Germany, what what were they offered? Well,
0: there were three reception centres set up, one in Lower Saxony and one in Hesse. You're talking hundreds of thousands of people passing through these centres and they were vetted, they were processed and then they were basically rehoused and began a new life um, in the West there was also a centre in Charlottenburg in Berlin, although the numbers there were, were much lower at this stage. Most of the people were actually slipping across the uh, IGB.
1: I'm presuming Albrecht is saying to Stalin, look, we, we've got to do something here, otherwise my country is going to basically disappear. What what does Stalin allow Albrecht to do to try and stem this?
0: It's a typical um, heavy hand. He says, right, right uh, Walter, tell you what, you go ahead and close that 1400 kilometre border with my blessing. So that's what they did. So the inner German border was closed. It was cut right through towns and villages, Villages, as we said. Communities were split. On One day you, you'd just walk across the, the town to school. The next day you couldn't because there was a border in the way. And the same with people going to work and families, communities split down the middle. And it took a little while to actually make it happen, so that the, the refugee numbers didn't drop overnight, but pretty soon it became uh, very impregnable fortifications, if you like uh, the numbers dropped dramatically and if you have a look in the book, I've got some diagrams of the fortifications you've got the uh, the death strip, you've got the mines you- it was a brutal scar running basically from the Baltic coast all the way down to the Czech border.
1: But in, in Berlin, the situation is, is different because you, you've got the, the Western powers with their sectors. You've got the Soviet sector, which isn't recognised by the Allied powers as part of East Germany. So so therefore there's no barriers in Berlin and people can still walk across the border into the West.
0: It acted like a, a sort of funnel So, all the people who wanted to leave. They still have free movement within the DDR and they just found a reason to go to, to uh, the um, Hauptstadt, to the capital, and would walk across the border. Now it it's not that straightforward. Obviously if you're walking across with half a dozen suitcases and the uh, the cat in a basket, you know that you're likely to get um, intervened uh, by the border guards or by the police. Um, so basically what people had to do was leave all their possessions behind, recognising that the life in the West was for them, and then slip across in ones and twos, on the S-Bahn, on the U-Bahn, or literally stroll across. Yes, some of them got caught, some of them got imprisoned, but... Tens and tens of thousands of them were being funneled through the trapdoor of Berlin. Uh,
1: Stalin and Albrecht must be desperate to try and find a way of evicting this Western tumour in the middle of uh, East Germany.
0: Yes, Stalin and then then Khrushchev, they, they were both obsessed by Berlin. The problem they had was they wanted, Stalin's grand plan was to have this ring of steel running all the way from the Baltic down to the Adriatic, his infamous Iron Curtain that Churchill christened in 1946, and that was um, his plan to basically defend Mother Russia from the Western hordes. In the middle of that, you had Berlin, which was 100, 100 miles inside the Soviet zone and of course it was the four, it was run by the four powers and that was a real irritation for Stalin and he did his best to try and evict them so back in 48 1948 he tried a very blunt tool and blockaded the city cut off all the road access the rail access uh waterways and basically tried to force the allies to leave Now, unfortunately for him, that didn't work. The Allies, the the British and the Americans at least, got their act together and began the Berlin Airlift, which my first book covers in quite a lot of detail. And that was a veritable logistical miracle so for almost a year they supplied every need for a city of over two million people by air flying in you know all all times of the day and night it was an extraordinary achievement and forced Stalin into a sort of humiliating climb down
1: i think it's worth noting at this point that west berlin is this island over 120 miles into east germany under the post war agreements, the city can be accessed by the Western powers by various road corridors and rail travel. But there's also air corridors that have been agreed to uh, give access to Berlin.
0: That's correct. There's an agreement made in 1945 that created three air corridors. All terminating in a 20 mile radius circle around the middle of Berlin, and that was called the Berlin Control Zone. And then there were three 20 mile wide corridors one heading towards Hamburg, one heading towards Hanover and and Brunswick, and one heading towards Frankfurt. And these were basically um, 20 miles wide, um, up to 10,000 feet, and you basically were able to fly up and down those with. Um, impunity that they could bring their military supplies in that way they could shuttle people out of berlin that way and then of course there were the road and the rail access as well the main autobahn left from Helmstedt in the the border between the two states and then headed across to terminating in checkpoint bravo
1: if anybody wants to learn a little bit more about the Berlin airlift, we have episode 56 of <laughs> Cold War Conversations, where I interview Gail Halverson, who was one of the pilots who flew in the Berlin Air, airlift. He's very famous as the candy bomber. He's, he, he's uh, a
0: very splendid guy. He was also um, boss of the um, Tempelhof Air Base as well. So he, he came back, it had, had his sort of moment of fame. Um, dropping uh, sweets to the starving kids of um, West Berlin, but also then came back some years later and took over as airbase commander, which I I was uh, quite surprised to find out.
1: A long history uh, with Berlin and sadly no longer with us anymore, but um, it was an honour to be able to speak with him. Absolutely. We're now into the period of Khrushchev. Uh, Stalin's died, Khrushchev's taken over, he's given his secret speech where he denigrates the Stalin period, but he is equally obsessed by Berlin.
0: Yep, he um, he sort of makes some famous, very strongly worded statements, basically get out of Berlin. He backs it up in November 1958 by throwing down the gauntlet, um, issuing an ultimatum, giving the West six months to finalise a... German peace treaty. It's a strange thing, really. At the end of the Second World War, there was the surrender, but there was never a formal peace treaty um, created between the uh, the allies at the time, the Soviets, Russians, the Americans, French and British, and the Germans. And that was left hanging. And that became a problem that wasn't resolved, actually, right until uh, re- reunification in 1990. But anyway, he said if the West didn't finalise that treaty, uh, quit the occupation and turn Berlin into a demilitarised free city. And Of course, you and I know that as soon as the Western powers left, they'd, he'd run in and take it over straight away. But if they didn't do that, he would sign a set peace treaty with the DDR and, of course, sign over all the Berlin access rights to them. Uh, and they would close the city city down very quickly. So it was a pretty serious ultimatum.
1: and And so how do the the allies respond to that? Because they know they're in a weak situation there. you You've obviously got nuclear deterrence in place, but there's obviously going to be some indecision in the US as to whether they would want to go to nuclear Armageddon over Berlin that
0: became a um a constant concern for the west the um the role of the nuclear deterrent and berlin if um the soviets did invade would the west drop the bomb um plans were put in place that were constantly updated right through the cold war but yeah you're right it's, it was a very much a, um, a a bone of contention but in the case of this november 1958 ultimatum some secret back-channel negotiations managed to get Khrushchev to back down, uh, and he withdrew the ultimatum in May 1959. But it was a bit like um, sweeping dust under the carpet. The crisis was over, but it was never resolved. And in the meantime, you've got Albrecht jumping up and down, um, constantly nagging his boss for a solution. So that's a, a factor that just kept kept continuing.
1: Albrecht is an interesting character. There's a photo of him on the same platform as Joseph Goebbels <laughs> prior to World War Two, where both the communists and the Nazis were against some. It was a transport strike, I think it was. I don't know if you've seen that photo. I haven't. That'd
0: be a fascinating picture.
1: I will dig that photo out for you. Where they were? Yeah, they were allied on the. Uh, the same cause but um you so, know, the communists and the nazis were allied uh <laughs> well, in world war ii with the uh, non-aggression pact but anyway we're digressing into world war ii
0: yeah and the, and the, the communists were pretty much marched out of germany by the nazis so you know Ulbricht disappeared as it happened eric Honecker, who will appear in this story very shortly and who then subsequently took over from Ulbricht. he unfortunately didn't escape and got um prison imprisoned by the gestapo so um that's another little
1: and there's some question marks as to whether he compromised uh to some degree with the gestapo as well while he was in but anyway Any... let's not go there <laughs> in this episode that sounds like a corker if we can get more evidence yes. on that uh so khrushchev has backed down but in 1960, there's uh, a projected summit between President Eisenhower of the US and uh, Khrushchev, but that is derailed by an uh, incident.
0: Very much so. So Khrushchev wanted to try a rapprochement. As you say, he's he, he's tried to renounce Stalin's deeds. He wants to try and establish a, a dialogue with the West, potentially a sort of a, a more cordial relationship. It's um, not necessarily very popular in, in Moscow, but um, he, he he goes out on that limb. He agrees to the summit meeting with Eisenhower in Paris, scheduled for the middle of May 1960. All the planning is going into that. Uh, there's a lot of stake. And then the whole thing's wrecked on the 1st of May when Gary Powers, Francis Gary Powers, flying his U-2 spy plane over Russia, over the Urals, and he's shot down by a missile. It was Supposed to be flying too high for um, so for Soviet missiles, but um, they miscalculated, or the the missiles went further than they thought they did, and he came down, and that caused a major fuss, a major scandal. When Khrushchev and Eisenhower met on the sixteenth um, of May for their for their summit, Eisenhower refused to apologise, and Khrushchev took that very badly, stormed out. So this long-planned rapprochement, this long-planned summit meeting fell by the wayside. Khrushchev sort of said, okay, fair enough. I'm going to wait and see what happens with the US election, which was scheduled for that uh, November. And then in the meantime, you have got our friend Ulbricht jumping up and down, nagging about Berlin.
1: Yes, indeed. Indeed, if you want to know more about the U2 incident... We actually have an episode on that. Surprise, surprise. Episode 23. So uh, do check that out. Can't promise we've got one on every subject in the Cold War, but certainly in this conversation, uh, we we have a few. I'll keep feeding you the leads and you try and match them up with the episodes. Exactly. That's that's exactly what I'm going to do. OK, so now there's a, an election. In the U.S. and a new president's on the block.
0: Yep, John F. Kennedy, the bright young future for the U.S. He beats Eisenhower, takes office in January '61. Big moments. Kennedy is untried on the international stage, um, but he is willing and uh, keen, and agrees to meet Khrushchev um, in June of that year. Khrushchev, on the other hand, saw the arrival of this new guy as an opportunity as an opportunity to force the Berlin issue. Ahead of the inauguration, Khrushchev brings out his ultimatum again and, and slaps it down on the Americans. And of course, our friend Ulbricht is still in the background. But he ups the ante. He establishes what's called what they called the Ulbricht lobby. So he actually is going behind Khrushchev's back and approaching people within the Politburo, um, trying to get them on his side to put pressure on Khr- Khrushchev. Then even more radical, he, he con- contacts the Chinese who are objecting to Khrushchev's uh, liberalisation. Um, they, they want him to take a harder line. So he Ulbricht he, um, basically co-opts the Chinese to try and put even more pressure on so we have this summit that was arranged. Um, it was arranged in June of 1961. That was all going ahead. The planning was 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 underway. But before that, Kennedy faced a humiliating uh, showdown in the Caribbean. His generals, it was a plan that Eisenhower's administration put together to basically invade Cuba and try and overthrow Castro's new regime down there and they planned this invasion with um cuban exiles to the bay of pigs this was in april it all went horribly wrong kennedy was badly advised by his generals and the invasion was a disaster but what that meant for kennedy is that he was on the defensive he was put on the back foot just as he was going into this summit with uh, khrushchev
1: and uh we have an episode about a CIA pilot who was uh, part of the um, the air power to uh, try and make the Bay of Pigs invasion succeed, and it is episode 247. I hope everybody's taking notes here. With the summit, this, this is pretty key for both of them then because Khrushchev is under pressure, Kennedy's on the back foot because of Bay of Pigs, and they're both... Trying to uh, prove themselves in front of their each's uh, domestic audiences.
0: Yeah, and it was a for Kennedy. It was a, it was a disaster. Um, the meetings were brutal. Khrushchev uh, very much um, beat the young guy up. He made a. Lot about the uh, Soviet losses during the war and how the Americans uh, suffered much less than the Soviets, and kept banging on and backing, banging on to Kent to Kennedy. And Kennedy Kennedy came out of it bruised and very concerned for the future. His uh, sort of feelings in, in discussions with the journalist just after the uh, meeting was that war is likely. It was uh, it was that bad.
1: Meanwhile, back in Berlin, what is the situation as far as people exiting the GDR? Basically,
0: the country was hemorrhaging key workers. The open borders were allowing people to to, um, escape the the regime through Berlin. But it was giving the East Germans severe skill and labour shortages. And the fragile economy was really in peril. They, they couldn't grow if they were losing all these key workers. So just to give you an idea of the scale, between forty nine, when the um, country was established and this Berlin crisis of 1961, approximately 2.8 million people had left. Now the population of East Germany wasn't big, it was only 17 million. So that's one in six people had left the country because they found the regime so unpleasant. Life in the workers' and um, peasants' paradise was not what it was. It wasn't living up to expectations, should we say. And in the months leading up to the Berlin Wall, you had as many as 6,000 people a week leaving. They were sent down to a new refugee centre, which was established at Marienfelder, down in the American sector, where they were processed and screened in a similar way. But they couldn't risk taking these uh, refugees, because they were political enemies of the people, if you like. They couldn't risk taking them out through the road and rail. So they were shuttled out on charter aircraft from Tempelhof to West Germany, where they began their new life.
1: And you mentioned screening there, because th- this is an ideal opportunity for the East German, the Stasi, and uh, Soviet intelligence services to get people into the West in amongst this flood of, of refugees.
0: They were quite successful at that. Um, the screening at Marienfelder was quite intensive. They used all sorts of agencies to um, process the guys. The CIA, the uh, defence intelligence people were basically interviewing people. If they were, were a person of interest, they get passed on to the next level of uh, um, screening. Uh, but people did slip through the East German Foreign Intelligence Service, the HVA, they were able to sneak quite a few agents through um, into the West. The most famous was uh, a guy called Gunther Guillaume. I pronounced that horribly, I'm afraid. But he came across in 1956 and he was able to rise up through the ranks. Of the the West German SPD to become a close aide to Willy Brandt, who who was the, the the Berlin mayor that we'll talk more about in a minute. But he then became chancellor. Um, and in 1974, he was unmasked as an East German spy, sentenced to uh, 13 years in prison, and basically cost um, Brandt his 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 position. He had to resign after that.
1: Very famous case that. So. How does our friend Walter respond to this exodus?
0: Well, he's maintaining his um, nagging on Khrushchev. There's a famous phrase, salami tactics. He's slicing slices of Khrushchev's resolve every time he speaks to him, and he was writing incessant um, uh, letters to him, really making his life difficult. Ulbricht wasn't actually aware, but Khrushchev was beginning to lean towards Ulbricht, um, it would stop his nagging for a start, but it would also divert some of Khrushchev's domestic political pressure, pressures. And this led to Ulbricht making this famous phrase that um, appears on one of your mugs, I think you, you sell in your shop. Niemand hat die Absicht einer Mauer zu errichten this was in a press conference on the 15th of june 61 nobody intends to put up a wall but of course nobody had actually mentioned anything about putting up a wall so i'm not sure whether it was a um, a mistake or whether it was all brit actually um making a, a subtle suggestions to what could happen
1: the East Germans making mistakes at press conferences sort of come through as a constant <laughs> refrain, particularly about the wall. I yes, mean, th- this is just almost a Schabowski moment.
0: <laughs> the, um, that they, they probably should have had some media training beforehand. Um, but the people of Berlin picked up on this. They, they, the citizens of Berlin were able to, of East Berlin, were able to read through the, uh, read between the lines the following day after the uh, famous press conference the infamous press conference uh, the biggest one day exodus happened um, 4770 people made the crossing quite what was interesting though the um so this, the the east berlin citizens had a feeling there was something happening the uh, western powers completely missed it which we'll talk about in a minute
1: we will we will so uh, Khrushchev eventually bows to Albrecht's demands and agrees that the sector boundary between the Soviet zone and the Western Allied military powers can be sealed.
0: Yeah, and on the 6th of July, he gives the go-ahead. Khrushchev is its very interesting, the dynamic between the two of them, as we said. Apparently, Khrushchev sat down with a pencil and went through the detailed plans um the 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 map that had been drawn up he actually followed it all the way through incredible amount of detail for for a uh sort of major leader but um such was the um such was the uh, relationship of the two of them so khrushchev agrees to uh that a barrier planning can commence Ulbricht gives the task to eric Honecker, whom we mentioned earlier And he gives it the task to plan the operation in total secrecy. And the operation is called Operation Rose. It was to seal all the sector borders, um, but it was to be disguised as a normal policing operation. But it was the tightest security you can imagine. By the 25th of July... The plans had been completed, which sort of suggests to me that they'd been worked on for months in advance. But um, you wouldn't expect it any less from our Walter, would you? Um, the map was carefully drawn up and it followed the postcode borders, boundaries all across the city. But there were some very strict conditions. The Soviets would remain very much in, in reserve. Ulbricht was told under no circumstances were the road and air corridors to be um, affected and that the war operations should not extend a millimetre into the Western sectors. The DDR must not give the West any reason for retaliation and Khrushchev was you know, absolutely adamant that that, that happened
1: And I guess that's probably why he wanted to look very closely at that map to uh, make sure for himself that there wasn't going to be any uh, scope creep in this operation. Now, this is an incredible operation as far as secrecy is concerned because I imagine there must have been huge quantities of equipment and building materials that they had to bring in in advance of this. How, do, how did they manage to keep the lid on that? And what sort of quantities are we talking about?
0: Well, they're obviously working within a police state. They, they, they could achieve a lot under the cover of state security. But you're right, the quantities were huge. They brought in something like 18,000 concrete posts, brought in um, five tonnes of binding wire two tonnes of staples, which are used to hold the to push the wire onto the posts, 300 tonnes of barbed wire and concertina wire. And the, one of the strange things here is that the East German supply chain didn't have enough to fulfil the job, so the East German regime covertly sourced barbed wire from the British and the West Germans, which is uh, very ironic. And, and there were thousands of pairs of protective gloves, and they, these were all covertly brought into army barracks police barracks under the cover of night and stockpiled at strategic points around the city
1: did they try and disguise some of this as far as they're going to build flats or things like that with some of the building materials
0: it was talked about as um, building materials for you know construction projects but anybody who actually looked carefully at what was being brought in would have realized that it was um, for nefarious purposes um, and as as we've said the Western intelligence agencies completely missed all this happening.
1: When does Albright get the final go-ahead from from Khrushchev to uh, set off Operation Rose?
0: So there's a meeting in Moscow on the 1st of August Khrushchev brings Ulbricht in and says that it will happen on the 13th of August, which is when Ulbricht could get back into the city and put the plans in place. When Ulbricht was given the go-ahead, he was like a little little kid in the candy shop, basically. He was jumping, almost jumping up and down with glee saying, yes, yes, this is fantastic. Because obviously he'd spent years nagging, 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 and now he had his, had his moment.
1: What is happening with the East German exodus? for via berlin at this point i'm presuming that you can't keep something like this completely secret aside from perhaps the day that it's going to happen on
0: well the um i say the western western intelligence agencies didn't pick up on it which i I find uh extraordinary considering the number of spies that are in berlin and i seem to remember there's a, a podcast episode about berlin spies but anyway let's move on um but the numbers kept growing Um, so the first week in July or sorry for the first six months of 1961 there's about 4,000 people a week uh, arriving at Marienfelder the first week in July saw the usual 4,000 but then the second week doubled to 8,000 people third week 9,000 and it kept growing Um, on the Saturday the 12th of August and that date's quite significant the record number 2,662 crossed over So much so that the Marienfelder Refugee Centre was overrun, basically, with with people. And um, Brandt had to request extra rations to feed the thousands of people going through the centre. They had to put them up in churches and all that sort of stuff because there were literally so many people coming
1: in. Incredible. Incredible. And Eric Honecker's in charge of Operation Rose. What sort of numbers are we talking about? Uh, as far as this this operation in terms of people, Volkspolizei and the, um, the factory militias? Well, it's a huge
0: operation and it was planned deliberately for the early hours of Sunday morning when most of uh, Berlin would be asleep. So Saturday afternoon, the orders start to cascade down from on high um, and the operation is enormous. There's over 8,000 of the Volkspolizei, the the people's police, the v- Vopos, um, they also had almost four thousand of the riot police, the, uh, the the VPB, and these were the heavy heavy gang who were basically uh, their job was to keep the people in order. They were the ones who yielded the wielded the uh, tear gas and the water cannons, but they also used something like thirty thousand of this organization called the um Kampfgruppen der Arbeiterklasse they were basically a factory militia the KDA and they were a little bit like territorials but they were organized around their, their places of work and these were a sort of um paramilitary militia force available for emergencies such like this and there, and there were as I say about 30,000 of them um as well as that you of course you had um about 5,000 Stasi agents um, working um, either in uniform or in plain clothes. Behind them was a huge military uh, reserve, motor rifle divisions, uh, tanks, armory personnel carriers, all based in the vicinity of Berlin. There were, there were regular NVA troops, the uh, National Volksarmee, And the whole East German police, the police forces and the whole army had been on heightened alert from the middle of July. In the background as well, there were three Soviet divisions and they were plonked at um, strategic points around the Berlin Ring autobahn.
1: We've obviously done a number of episodes on Bricksmiths and the military liaison missions. Did they not pick anything up about this?
0: It was a complete and utter surprise um I've spoken to Brix bricksmith's um uh, people and read an awful lot of archive material around it and it was a it, it was a surprise which given the fact that they were flying missions over uh, berlin in the chipmunk, uh, Operation Oberon. I'm surprised it wasn't picked up because they were able to photograph down into bases. But, well, perhaps they'd, things have been spotted, but they hadn't put two and two together. That's, that, that's, the, that's the key thing. So it was a huge intelligence failing.
1: So Sunday the 13th, X hour, is 0100 hours. Barbed wire Sunday. How does it go?
0: Stackeldragssonntag. Barbed Wire Sunday I'm glad you did. Yeah
1: I wasn't going to dare try and pronounce that but you're a braver man than me I've twisted it but um yeah
0: so barbed wire sunday is it became known as operation was put in place and it was it was very carefully choreographed with prussian efficiency um the sed sed the political regime were very keen that it looked like a civilian operation so therefore the nva the army uh, were kept very much in the shadows the reality is though, um, there were so many different types of East German police. You had the Vopos, you had the Trappos, which are the transport police, the riot police, the, the KDA we mentioned. You also had border troops, the the, the Grepos, uh, they all looked pretty much the same. They all wore um World War II-style German uniforms, um jack boots, and carried the same weapons. So actually, the this um sensitivity of being a, a, a civilian operation it was a very moot point because to all intents and purposes they were all the same so at five past one in the morning zero 105 hours all the street lights are turned off in the areas of the closure and they then established a human chain running all the way along the inner Berlin sector border this plan that um, Hagen Koch and his colleagues and then Ulbricht and Khrushchev had carefully considered, worked out the density of people required per meter. So there, there were some key strategic points, such as the Brandenburg Gate, which we'll talk about in a minute, where these these KDA militia would be shoulder to shoulder in, in a human chain. In other less sensitive points, they were like perhaps a meter apart. But it was all specified in in the plan for Operation Rose. Slowly but surely, they put this. Um, human barrier running right down the middle of berlin the professional soldiers the nva the vopos the greppos were all issued with live ammunition the kda guys who were militarized but perhaps didn't have the same levels of discipline they were carrying those russian submachine guns but they were had empty magazines put in them that they had up they had full magazines in their packs but they were deliberately Kept unarmed because they couldn't necessarily be trusted not to take a pot shot at the West and therefore escalate the the um, incident. Once the human chain was in place, they began unloading the barbed wire and that got unfurled right along this um, inner in, in inside Berlin border. By six o'clock in the morning, it had been completed. The Brandenburg Gate, which is obviously a a massive, iconic symbol of Berlin. It was a big prize. It it stood for more than um, it actually was in terms of prestige, um, which is why I've I've chosen it as my sort of logo on my website, because I think it's just such an iconic image. But the the operation to take the, 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 the gate was very carefully choreographed. To start with, you had the row of KDA militia, all shoulder to shoulder, Then in the background, you had armoured cars and water cannons and they slowly but surely, foot by foot, sneaked through the gates. And this is all shown in photographs. You can can see how it sort of gradually unfurls. And then foot by foot, they let the edge forward until the armoured cars form a barrier in front of the gate. Uh, And it is basically sealed off by six o'clock in the morning extraordinary operation had succeeded so the the whole ring around west berlin was 155 kilometers long um on the outer border and quite a lot of this to be honest had been sealed off back in 1952 when they did the you know igb closure but the inner section which is like 43 kilometers was completely cut off all without a shot being fired now however barbarous the uh the whole concept of the Berlin Wall is—you can't help but perhaps a, a little bit of admiration as to the, the logistical feat that went that went went in here. And basically, Honecker, who was the architect of Operation Rose, it, it propelled him to the top of the party, and so much so that in, in 1971 he ousted Ulbricht and became uh, general secretary. But that's a different story.
1: That's another that's not, episode. Another episode. <laughs> what about the situation at checkpoint charlie how how does that that play out because that's the crossing point for the west into east berlin so that that's still kept open
0: yeah so there were about 13 crossing points between east and west berlin at that stage And they were for various people. So um, West Berliners could use certain crossing points. But the one that was utilised for foreigners, uh, including military personnel, was Friedrichstrasse, just, just sort of south-east of the Brandenburg Gate. It wasn't called anything at this stage. It was just a crossing point. But because the East Germans decided to funnel all the Western people through that one point it became quite a strategic point in, in in berlin history and you had various checkpoints across berlin so you had checkpoint alpha which was the helmstedt motorway checkpoint um, on the border between east and west germany you had checkpoint bravo which was the entry point of that um, autobahn into south berlin and you had checkpoint charlie so alpha bravo charlie um you had that um between east and west berlin in the center of town and it obviously came to have quite a lot a lot of significance um and was became as, as iconic you could say as the brandenburg gate itself but this chap um, hagen koch who we talked about earlier he he was very much the geographical um expert and was 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 called to um Uh, sort of you know carefully map out the route of the uh, border but he was given a tin of white paint and told to paint this line across the middle of the road it's about six inches wide but this white line it was um well in the book i talk about it sort of as a meeting point of two tectonic plates the capitalist west and the communist east and was witness to some notable seismic events during the cold war i was obviously waxing lyrical at that stage
1: i stood across that tectonic plate in 1989 when i went there in in june uh sadly nobody i didn't get my mate to take a photo of me because that would have been that would have been pretty good i've got a photo of him but uh crazily enough i haven't got a photo of me but it was a very dramatic place and the the site now is a very poor tatty tourist isn't it tatty tour yeah it's uh
0: there's a very good museum there though that um has been there i went to see it in in 86 and it's um it's a very good museum by a guy who was actually a refugee himself he, he set up this, this museum at checkpoint charlie um i've got a photo as well of reagan um you know when reagan delivered the Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall speech. He also went to visit Checkpoint Charlie, and he's actually standing there, right in the middle, right by the line where you were, with an MP, which extraordinary sort of, I suppose, bravery or just doing it for the cameras, because obviously he was un- he was unprotected there. He was um, um, facing the communist hordes, so that's quite a quite an interesting photograph. That
1: there's another photo taken. After the wall is built, with Khrushchev at Checkpoint Charlie, and you can see Ulbricht lurking in the background. He doesn't want to be front and centre. He's sort of almost embarrassed to uh, be there. But there are—it's an interesting juxtaposition between those two uh, two images. I'll have to uh, dig that out and add that to the uh, show notes.
0: The um, so the relationship between the two of them was very strange um there's this concept called the regime of deputies whereby the power rests with the the deputy the, the sort of the junior partner the the people at the top of the, of the um the tree are more for uh, presentation if you like and Ulbricht was a master at that he had uh, Wilhelm Pieck as the as the sort of president the the figurehead but he was in the background sort of you know pulling all the strings while his own strings were being pulled by the Soviets. So it was a really strange dynamic there. But Albrich managed to persuade Khrushchev to, to close the borders and he'd won.
1: But how do the Allies respond to this? Because they, they've had a massive intelligence failure. It's a complete fate accompli for them. So what, what can they do and how do they react?
0: Interesting response. Um, as, as you say, the West were court napping. Um To be honest, the Berlin commanders didn't know whether this was a prelude to another blockade. You know, was it going to be another Berlin airlift required or was it actually a prelude to an invasion? Um, I've got some great pictures of a British infantry platoon stationed just by the um, Brandenburg Gate on the Strasetis 17th of June uh, by the Soviet War Memorial with an anti-tank gun. And they're all camouflaged nets and they're all, you know, just in case the Russian tanks start rolling up that avenue. Um, but they they didn't know what to do. So um, they deployed infantry all over the city. It went into high alert, as you can probably imagine. The commanders requested permission to bulldoze the wire down because it, it was obviously at the weakest point in its whole uh, history. Uh, it was just a load of barbed wire. A tank would just mince that. Um but because that barrier was a meter behind the actual border, any incursion by uh, Western tanks would, in effect, be an invasion of East Berlin, and that would have instantly become a major international incident. World War Three. It's, it's um, you know very clever the way it was done by by uh, Khrushchev and Ulbricht. But the British and um, one of the key things they wanted to check was whether their rights of access as defined by the uh, four power agreements, whether that was being compromised. So they did various things. They Americans sent over some diplomats in um, official cars, and that's something that would actually cause a quite a lot of problems later in the month uh, or l- later in the year. But um, the British commandant took his big shiny car and ostentatiously drove across into East Berlin with uh, an escort of MPs in jeeps. But he he went on a, on a flag tour, if you like. And then, quite amusingly, um, without consultation with their husbands, the GOC of the British sector sent some Bricksmith's wives, some of the wives of the Bricksmith's um, officers, over in an official Bricksmith's car um, on the pretense of buying some tickets for the opera. Quite why you'd go and buy tickets on this day is by the by, but that's what they did. And they were able to, to proceed un, uninterrupted, unmolested, through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin. All they had to do was wave their passes, and they went through. They went and bought the tickets, came back without any interruption. So that demonstrated very early on that this right of access wasn't being affected. And then the other thing they did was the Bricksmiths, uh, Chief Bricksmith ordered the chipmunk to go up and observe. And so basically the deputy chief and um, a wing commander took the aircraft up and it flew basically a loop all the way round to the um, what became the sort of inner and outer Berlin Wall, photographing everything. And they could find from that that sortie that everything was going on inside East Berlin. It wasn't there was no encroachment, as Khrushchev insisted, into West Berlin. And they also observed that the Soviets were keeping well back, but crucially, they were between the East German barracks and East Berlin. So so they had this really strange, strange situation where the Soviets would have protected the um, the four power agreements if Ulbricht had gone off script, if he'd gone further than was agreed. You had the East, the Soviet army ready there to intervene to stop him. Again, very strange dynamic.
1: Have you found any of those bricksmiths aerial photos of the early stages of the building of the wall in the archive? Not yet. I've got
0: thousands and thousands of pictures, uh, and a lot from the, um, uh, the chipmunk sorties. But I don't know if I've got the um, those 1961. Um, they are probably basically deep in some secret. File um somewhere that's not open i th- just because they were so sensitive all the bricksmith's um aerial photography the the chipmunk was, was classified top secret so that had to go through the you know the however many years before it was declassified but I've got thousands of pictures of bricksmith's uh sorties i must uh, I, I need to go through them for the for the book I'm writing
1: how does Albricht and the East German Politburo try and portray the massive benefits to the East German population of the building of the anti-fascist protection barrier, as they so uh, charmingly call it?
0: Well, the they are ready for this. The anti the and as you say, the anti-fascist protection barrier was how, how it was portrayed. And the East German media basically went into overdrive. All along, they'd been positioning the uh, exodus as western headhunting even human trafficking in in the media they they sort of really screamed that the west were stealing our best people not that these people were leaving of their own free will that the west were luring them or even worse kidnapping them and all this went on in the east german media Um, and because the media was fully controlled by the state the east german population basically had to they had no other news source um, apart from perhaps some of the, the radio broadcasts that uh, went across into, um, into East Germany. But this brainwashing began the minute the wall went up and continued right up until the end.
1: Did many East Germans then get out where they may not have got the barrier up completely securely? Because I, I guess there must have been a reaction amongst the East German population to try and get out let's
0: give you some numbers here saturday the 12th of august 2600 people made it to, to marienfelder sunday the 13th 150 wow monday the 14th 41 now those people um who managed to jump out of windows. We'll talk about that in a minute, perhaps. But they managed to sneak through the, the cordon. Um, as you say, it was it was people that were forming the cordon to start with, then it was barbed wire. Barbed wire can be climbed over. Uh, obviously, not when you're being observed or chased, but you can get over it. But there, people were, were sneaking through buildings and that sort of stuff. And very embarrassingly for Ulbricht, quite a lot of um, soldiers and security people also took the opportunity, this last opportunity, to jump over.
1: How many of the uh, East German security services took advantage of still being able to uh, get across into the West?
0: Well, obviously, they were were briefed on what was happening, Uh, not necessarily in advance, but um, they they knew what was happening. Over the first 36 hours, nine or ten guards would jump across, and in six weeks there will be eighty-five of the of the of the guards of the border border troops or whoever, basically seeing this opportunity and seizing it uh, before it was lost f- forever. One of the most famous is a guy called Conrad Schumann. He was a nineteen-year-old border guard, and um, there's a very iconic photograph of him uh, that I think will probably be in the um, the show notes. Taken by a West German uh, photojournalist called Peter Liebing, Conrad was basically on guard uh, by a barbed wire section. He was clearly restless. You could see him glancing a lot over to the to the west, and uh, Liebling, the uh, photographer, was basically thinking, "There's might something might happen here," so he just kept an eye on this guy. The East German guy finally must have built up courage. He checked that his colleagues weren't looking in his direction, took a running jump over the wire, and there's this fantastic picture of him in midair with his um, coal scuttle helmet on and his jack boots and his Russian machine gun is just being sort of like discarded in midair as he jumps across. Um, and then he, he made it into the West. A police van that was nearby... Drove up, jumped into the police van, drove off. And that became one of the most iconic pictures of the Berlin Wall, but perhaps even one of the most iconic pictures of the Cold War, full full stop. It's quite a sad story, really, because he went over into the West, uh, I think ends up working in a car factory in Stuttgart or somewhere, but never really felt comfortable there. And then after the reunification, he went back to his home town, when he got there, he was basically ostracised by his former friends and family, who thought he was a traitor. They'd obviously, you know, had so many years of brainwashing that he was a traitor to the cause, and blah blah blah. But he was completely isolated and and, uh, and shunned. Um, and the poor guy committed suicide in the end, which is a, a sad tale. But he gave the uh, the West one of the most iconic pictures <laughs> of the whole event.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, a sad story indeed. What was the international reaction to the sealing off of the sector boundaries?
0: Well, this is one of the key things, really. There was, there was silence for about 48 hours and the Western commanders were you know jumping up and down wanting to know what was happening. But those forays that I mentioned earlier into into the East, where the cars went, the commander went, um, the bricksmith's wives went, the chipmunk, all demonstrated to, to Kennedy and the and the, the other leaders that it was inside East Berlin, that they weren't interfering um, with the access rights or the um, sector borders. So there's, there's a great phrase from Kennedy, Khrushchev would not have had a wall built if he really wanted to take West Berlin. If he were to occupy the whole city, he wouldn't need a wall. It's not a particularly pleasant solution, but a wall is a damn sight better than a war. So that was his thinking. That actually, it's not great, but it's better than than um, what it could be.
1: And and it's basically stabilised the situation in Berlin because there was some unease, I think, as to how an accidental incident could occur with that sort of porous boundary there.
0: Berlin remained a a hair trigger right through to the end of the Cold War. But yes, the 1961 crisis was resolved by the wall. But as with many of these things, it, it was dust swept under a carpet. The problems were still there. And Berlin continued to be a thorn in the side for both the Soviets and the West.
1: What was the reaction of West Berliners to uh, the division of the city?
0: Not good, as you can probably imagine. Um, There's some tragic scenes, which I've, I've got some really quite distressing pictures in the, in the book, of West Berliners um, climbing up on lampposts and holding children up high to better see their loved ones because basically families were split, depending on where they lived, a, a, a real postcode lottery. Um, there were large demonstrations um, in the West Um there were some in the east, but again, the police state were able to, to to quell quite a lot of the demonstrations there. But in the west, you had stone throwing, tear gas being um, deployed. You had water cannon. I've got some great photos of these water cannons that had come through the Brandenburg Gate firing their, their, their jets of water at demonstrators um, at the end of that avenue we were talking about. What was interesting, though, the West Berlin police had to intervene because they feared the West Berlin protesters would spark a military response. So you had a, a sort of, you know, reluctantly had to intervene. Uh, but tear gas exchanges across the, the wall became a very regular thing. On the 16th of August, there was a major gathering outside City Hall in West Berlin. There was 250,000 West Berliners. And the Berlin mayor, Willy Brandt, made a very... Impassioned speech, asking for um, help from the West.
1: What help do the Allied military powers provide to to West Berlin?
0: Well, Brandt is laying it on thick. He's um, his city is in a, is in a really dangerous situation. He says, "We are not afraid. Berlin expects more than words. Berlin expects political action." Um, so this. Crowd of quarter of a million West Berliners, obviously, you know, very much supportive of his words. He then does a very unusual thing. He then writes directly to Kennedy, which is highly irregular, if you like, from from a um, diplomatic point of view. But basically, he's saying you've got you've got to intervene here. There's, there's a you know this it's a very dangerous situation. Our rights are about to be washed away by the uh, the Soviets. So. Kennedy mulls this. Um, He he obviously doesn't want to be provocative to the uh, Soviets, but he decides to do two things. One, he's going to send his vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, LBJ, along with uh, General Lucius Clay. Now, General Clay was the hero of the Berlin airlift. We only mentioned that briefly, but um, he was the driving force behind the... um, The airlift planning and was very much a hero to West Berliners. So he sent these two um, high profile people in a PR stunt, sent them to West Berlin. He also sent a reinforced battle group um, of the 18th Infantry, and these were like 1,500 or so troops. And they departed on about the 18th of August. Uh, arriving on the 20th um, to a rapturous welcome. I mean, literally, the the roads were lined by Berliners uh, greeting this battle group. Again, 1,500 troops is not going to make much difference, although it did boost the garrison, the Allied garrison, to about 13,500 troops. But it was a massive PR stunt that um, did a lot to demonstrate the West's support for the West Berliners.
1: What rules of engagement was that battle group given if they had been stopped at any point in that journey along the corridor because two days sounds like quite a long time for them to traverse that
0: to try and get a 1500 strong battle group they didn't have tanks with them but they had artillery so it's a massive column and to marshal that along that 100 mile autobahn was actually quite tough uh, the Ameri- the Soviets put roadblocks in, which the Americans had to negotiate. Um, the guy in charge was a former World War II commander, very experienced, not going to take any stick from the Soviets. And, you know, his force of will managed to get them past the roadblocks. Rules of engagement were that if they were fired upon, they should f- fight their way out. So they, they had permission that... Um, you know if it did come to it they could they could engage and obviously that would have led to a very very dangerous escalation but due to his i suppose force of will <laughs> not going to let these commies stop me sort of thing he was able to to reach the city again rapturous uh, response lbj apparently was more interested in buying a pair of shoes than really doing too much so he was somewhat distracted for some strange reason but um, he, he returned to the us but uh, lucius clay stayed on behind
1: the wall is being further fortified during this period because we we talked right at the start that it was a barbed wire barrier initially how soon are they actually building a wall
0: when the west didn't respond as i said there was that 48 hour Hiatus, if you like, Ulbricht or Honecker ordered a reinforcement of that barbed wire. So basically that involved wooden trestles, it involved uh, steel girder hedgehogs, they're called, and posts with wire put on. So it was more than just concerti- concertina wire, it actually became a slightly more substantial barrier. Then when the West hadn't replied again, by about the twenty second, the next phase began, and then that involved bricking up. It was called. Now, people have a view of the Berlin Wall as the the very the, the, the later Berlin Wall, which has these prefabricated concrete slabs and the oval, the circular um, uh, sort of section at the top. The early walls was very sh- um, shoddy in the way it was built. It was made of blocks of concrete. Uh, it was made of. Like breeze blocks, roughly cemented together. Steel sort of uh, risers were put at the top for barbed wire, but it was very shoddily built. Of course, it wasn't built in any foundations. So you had a situation where if you'd pushed hard enough, sections of the wall would have come down. But this pause that the West did allowed the east germans to really start to reinforce the wall, and then it went through over over years it went through various iterations it got much more sophisticated and, and impregnable you could say but those early days it was very shoddy
1: andrew's books on cold war berlin are available via the links in the podcast information don't miss the episode extras such as videos photos and other content Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters, and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week.